This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. Gather around the Word of God. It really is a privilege. So many people out there in our world that don't honor this Word. People out there even who profess to be Christians who want nothing, not much to do with it. Uh, But it's important and it's right that we give it preeminence and we ask God to speak to us, to to change us, to lead us and to guide us. Um, And it's right that we do that. Just before I begin, let's just have a wee word of prayer. Let's bring this before God. Lord God in heaven, we praise you. Lord, we thank you, Lord, that it is your good pleasure to to speak to your children. It's your good pleasure to lead us. It's your good pleasure to guide us, to feed us of the manna that never runs dry. God in heaven, we thank you for the word. We thank you, dear God in heaven, that you have your way today. Lord, we want you to be honored and lifted up. Lord, regardless of my stumbling lips and my failing words, I pray, Lord, that your word and your spirit would take your word and apply it to our lives. Because, dear God in heaven, this is all about you. Now, Lord Jesus, we ask you to break the bread of life to us. As I did break the loaves beside the sea, beyond the sacred page, we seek you, Lord. Our spirit pants for thee, O living word. Amen. God, we glorify you. Amen. Hallelujah. Amen. You have your Bible with you this morning. If you turn to the book of Colossians. Book of Colossians. Um, I've absolutely... Uh, uh, I don't want to say fallen in love because of all the connotations we have in that word, that phrase, but I absolutely love the book of Colossians. I've come to admire it more and more over the last few months when I've been doing a few studies on it and things like that there, and it's fascinating, and it's wonderful to see how God has, has given us insights into who he is. He's given us information. He's given us truth that will help us through our lives. This was written many, many years ago, thousands of years ago. And yet, it is as appropriate and as timely today as it's ever been. The the, the names might have changed of the things that they faced, but the truth is that the truth is still the truth. God's word stands supreme. God's word has for us answers for all the things that we face. Now, that sounds bizarre to this world out there, to people who do not know Christ and do not honor the word. That's a bizarre notion. That there can be truth in this, that there can be life in this, that there can be health in this, that there can be something in this that will help us through this journey. That's bizarre to people out there. It's absolutely, you're out of your mind. Because to them, all this is is a history book. All this is is a book of fairy tales. Maybe, uh, Maybe a history of a person called Jesus maybe a a biased history of the people of Israel. That's as far as they'll go. But mostly they'll say it's a myth. It's a fairy tale. You may as well read Lord of the Rings. You may as well read something like that, they say. But to us who know Christ as our Savior, who have his spirit dwelling within us, this is the words of eternal life. Where else would we go for the words of eternal life? The words of the, the apostles to Christ. Where else would we go? There's nothing out there that would even barely scratch the surface. Nothing else out there that would satisfy us, that would feed us, that would help us to grow, to mature, to stretch out our spiritual limbs. Nothing else that would equip us for the road ahead. And is it any wonder that the scriptures are bombarded and attacked every day? Is it any wonder they're relegated to the past? Whenever this is, is, is fuel for our church, fuel for our souls, oh, we don't want the Christians to do anything. We don't want them to think they get, that they've got something that's valuable. We don't want them to think that they've got something that's precious. Because if they think they've got something that's precious and valuable, and they start to spend time digging in it, and mining in it, and feeding on it, oh my word, who knows what will happen then? 
Who knows how this world will be changed? Who knows how Moira will be changed whenever we get such a grip on God and on his word that we're on fire for him and we'll accept nothing less than God moving in our lives. Nothing less than having him in our lives daily. Oh, praise the Lord. I haven't even started yet. God is good. God is glorious. Isn't it wonderful to come together and to honor God? Because that's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. We're honoring God. We're praising him. So let's start right away. First, Colossians 1. Colossians 1 and verse 9. For this reason we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Well, that, it's not my message, but there you go. There's your, if you want to know God's will for your life, I've just read it there. Uh, his will for our lives that we walk worthy of him, fully pleasing him, that we're fruitful in every good work, and that we grow, increase in the knowledge of God. There's God's will for our lives. Let's start there. Start there. I want to know what God wants me to do because I want to be on a stage. That's not the point. If you think that's the point, you, you've missed the first step. First step is to honor him Amen. and to go through those steps. Walk worthy of him, pleasing to him, fruitful to him, and increasing in the knowledge of God. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, verse 11 goes on to say, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, with all patience and long suffering, with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Verse 15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on, are on earth. Invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. Praise the Lord. And as a, a comment on what we're going to look at today and why we're looking on this, Colossians 2.8 says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. We do live in interesting times. We do live in times that are challenging to believers, challenging to people who have a different mindset than the world. Or we should have a different mindset than the world. We should have that different value system. We should be honoring God with our lives. The world doesn't do that. It's challenging to us because the world looks at us and thinks we're bonkers. They think that we are crazy, that we are deluded. I have often brought a friend into a group and I've had a few Christians there and I've had discussions with this friend and I've thought to myself, I'm going to introduce the friend. Here's some other people who are bonkers. Because they think we're bonkers. Especially if they've walked away from Christ. They think we're deluded, living in a dream, living in a fantasy. Weak people with wild imaginations. It's a challenging time from without and from within. Within the church, there are many who discount the scriptures, who look at it and say that only parts of it are important, only certain things have value. Many years ago, the certain churches, certain denominations embraced this idea that the Old Testament is all an allegory. It's all a story. It's all a, a, a fairy tale help, to help us along. It's like Pilgrim's Progress, and that's all the value in it. But it's not true. There's many things in it which are gems to us, which are important to us. Many doctrines have come under question. Recently, a scene where, uh, again, Pastor mentioned it as well, actually, about the people not viewing the Ten Commandments as important, people not viewing Christ's sacrifice as important. 
people viewing the fact that Christ died on the cross as merely an act, and let's get on with it. Let's brush past that. I remember when I was at Bible college hearing the, uh, a preacher from a, another Bible college in England speak, and he'd said how it's remarkable that a lot of the young preachers or young students who come from Northern Ireland to do Bible college, when it comes to their first sermon or their homily, as they call it, all preach on the blood and the cross and Christ. Whereas in England and, and in other parts of Europe, no, no, no. I mean, they're, they're uncomfortable topics. I mean, those are things we don't like to think about. Blood and, and guts and Christ. Oh, that's, that's awful brutal. Pastor's been talking about Moses, who had one of the greatest educations of his day, brought up in the royal household with all of the, the people there teaching him things. And yet, God took him into the desert to, to, okay, now I want you to sacrifice a goat. I want you to sacrifice this sheep. What? God offends our minds. He offends our sensibility sometimes to reveal what our heart is like. And it's important that we're grounded and we realize that there's a point to this, the word. There's a point to the message. See, whether we know when we read a passage of Scripture, we know all the insights in it or not, my advice is if you don't, just keep reading it and keep reading on. Because as we read the Scriptures, the, the Holy Spirit, whose job it is to, to bring it to us, to teach us, he'll start connecting the dots the more we read the Scriptures. But there's many within the church who discount the importance or the value of the Scriptures. Many people who carry only a New Testament. And I don't mean that in any negative way to anyone today who might have only a New Testament. But there's value in the whole book. There's importance in the whole book. See, with the Scriptures, we remain anchored. We remain firmly grounded in what God has said. If we just read a verse and then we wander off into our imaginations thinking what it could mean and we never come back to the verse or we never come back to another verse, who knows where we'll end up in our imaginations? Who knows what we'll come up with? Well, I tell you, we'll come up with our own bespoke, personalized faith. We'll come up with our own bespoke, that's the word for today, bespoke understanding of God and who he is. Because we'll have wandered off into a place that is not grounded. Whereas proper exegesis or interpretation of the word involves us reading and then sort of thinking and meditating. It's not a, not a bad idea. Meditating on the word, then coming back to the word, then meditating on it, then coming back to the word. But we're always coming back to the word. Yeah, so it's important that we continue to hold the word up and to hold Christ up. It's remarkable in the West, and especially we can say for the British Isles, where Christianity and, and has become so relegated. For once the great nation that was formed and shaped and, and influenced by Christians, look at John Wesley and Charles Wesley and the influence that they had upon our society. And yet we're so far from it now, turning our backs more and more every day. And yet, remarkably, Belief in angels is increasing. People are believing in angels more and more and more. Ironically, whenever uh, Stephen Hawking passed away, the famous atheist, people wrote on a, a website all for condolences, and someone actually said the words to the effect, he no longer has his wheels, but now he has his wings. What? What? To understand the, the, the value of these things, the importance of these, the, the, the truth of these things. It's a nice sentiment, and I understand the sentiment, but that's all it is, is sentiment. A famous rock star dies, or, or someone's killed in a foreign country, or whatever, and we all, you know, as sad and as tragic as those events are, as sometimes those lives are, doesn't qualify anyone for the kingdom of heaven. There's only one qualification for the kingdom of heaven. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the only qualification. His work on Calvary is the only way we have an entrance into heaven. But we want a million ways. I want a million options. No, no, no. The remarkable thing is that there is one option. That there is an option. Because he could have made it that there was none. 
And the person of Jesus is often attacked. Who he is, what he did, whether he existed or not. And for believers and for professing believers, they either draw him so close that he's, he's closer than a brother, and he's so close that they're on very, very casual terms with him, or else they push him so far away that he's insignificant for our everyday. There's always that extreme, that pressure. And pastor had mentioned not long ago about his transcendence. He is the God of the universe. And yet at the same time, he is imminent. He is clear, close to us. It's good to look into these things. It's good to stay grounded in these things. So this morning, I want to look at a few verses, these three verses in Colossians, and see how the apostle Paul describes Jesus. Because it's important that we start off in the right place. We need to remind ourselves sometimes every day of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. <coughs> I don't have a big message today that's going to be theologically challenging. I, don't have to, I haven't plumbed the depths of, of the scriptures to come bring out verses from all over the, 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 the Bible. But I want us to remind ourselves to be refreshed again on who he is and what he's done for us. The book of Colossians, as I said, it's a remarkable book. It's, it's truly, I found it quite fascinating. It was probably written about 60 to 62 AD. Paul wrote it. Um, it was written and given to uh, the church at Colossae. Um, Paul had never been to Colossians. He had spent three years in Ephesus planting a church there. It actually says in, uh, that the, the word of God went out throughout all the Asia. And people like Epaphras, who, who was mentioned in the book of Colossians, who had started the church in Colossians, he'd come to Paul in Rome. He had heard that Paul had been arrested and he was under house arrest. And uh, uh, he was obviously going to meet, uh, um, meet his demise there. So Epaphras came to him. And he came to him and he told him about the church in Colossae. He says, remember, you remember me? And he did. You remember him? Remember me from Ephesus that you preached and I, I got on fire. I believed God. I believed the word. I believed the gospel, the good news. That's all he had, the good news. And I went out and he says, he, he went out and he planted churches. He planted uh, Colossians, Colossae, uh, Laodicea and Herapolis, which are the three sort of cities along the line. And he told Paul about this. And Paul was probably in all likelihood, in the, in the process of penning his letter for the church of Ephesus. And he then went on to pen Colossians and Philemon, all of the, the same sort of time frame. And he sent them back with Onesimus. And then remember Onesimus, the slave who ran away from his master Philemon? Philemon was, uh, was probably associated with the church of Colossae. And Onesimus and Tychicus took these three books Ephesians, which is a general letter. Colossians, which is an occasional letter. General in the sense that it was for the whole church. Colossians was occasional. It was written on the occasion of his visit, on occasion of a problem. And Philemon, which is an individual letter. They all stand unique. It's great letters. Well worth studying. Pastor obviously loves Ephesians. Um, as we all do, it's a good book now. In this church and in this area, there are many different beliefs and this is just to lay a bit of a groundwork for why the, the book was written. There's many different beliefs because there was many different people. It was once a great city. It was once prosperous. It was growing and growing and growing. Um, but then at times, times had changed. Trade had changed and it was no longer as important as, or as valuable to uh, the region. Which should actually be a good reminder for us. It was no longer the type of place that will be worthy of attention or notice. And yet there was a church there, and that church was worthy of notice. That church was worthy of a book in the Bible. No matter where we find ourselves and where we find our church, we find our own lives, and we might feel sometimes that we are insignificant, that we might feel that we're forgotten or we're overlooked. We might feel a million different things. We're not insignificant when it comes to God. We're not unimportant when it comes to the kingdom of heaven. We're not. We have a value and an importance. We've got a role to play. We've got a task ahead of us. Oh, but what about that church or that place? It's bigger. It's more successful. Forget it. Our place is here. 
our place with God has got his hand on us. He's leading us. He's guiding us. He's directing us. He's developing us. He's growing us up. He's maturing us. Our value is in serving him where we are. That's the old saying, grow where you're planted. So in this area, they had different people groups. They had Romans, Greeks, uh, Fijians. Um, They had beliefs in the Roman gods, the Greek gods. They had animism, which was the uh, belief in elemental spirits. Um, it's, not, it's not like that 80s group, Earth, Wind, and Fire, but um, everything had a spirit, everything had a value. <coughs> Excuse me. Even to the point where actually just outside of the city, on the hills, they had these salt, uh, uh, salt p- pools, you would call it, springs, um, which were, the city was well known for. You can actually look it up, it's still there. If you look up uh, Co- uh, Cotton Castle in Turkey, and of course... Paul, being quite uh, astute and uh, like to mention things in Colossians 4, 6, he talks about, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know what you ought to answer each one. Paul knew, he knew the area. He knew what was going on. So there's all these beliefs, all these faiths, all these different ideas going on. And it's okay that the world has all those beliefs in the sense that they can really do what they want to do. Until they've heard the truth, they're walking by whatever knowledge they have, and they're just walking along uh, superstitions and, and myths. But the problem is, whenever that starts to encroach in the church, now one of the biggest things that they've came to face the church over the uh, at the early days was Gnosticism. Martin and I were talking about this last last week, I believe it was. Gnosticism is very complex but it's the idea of gnosis knowledge and that there is a special knowledge a revealed knowledge Sophia was a common belief that Sophia this emanation from God had given certain people a special knowledge and revelation of who God was and this special knowledge was uh, really it was um, philosophical in nature it would give them insights it would create an elitism in the church these are the group that know, these are the group that don't know. We see that every day, don't we? A group that says that we are the ones living in the dark ages, that our interpretation of the Bible on uh, um, any matter of subjects is outdated and antiquated. There's a group in our, I'm not in here today, but there's a group in the church as a whole, which look at our views on uh, life, sexuality, on death, on marriage, on family, and things like that, and go, oh, you're just in the dark ages. You're, you're, you're living in a, in a limited knowledge and limited understanding. You need another translation of the Bible to help you understand these things. It wasn't much different from their day. They had these ones that claimed to have a special knowledge. Now, they went further than that because this wasn't a, specifically a Christian belief. I mean, they believed that uh, from Platonism, Plato taught that the spirit was pure and it was out there and it was beyond the world and and everything that was fleshly and earthly in the ground was therefore evil by default. So therefore God couldn't interact with the earth. Boy, that would be different. That would be difficult. So they had all these eons and emanations and of various levels of, uh, uh, of holiness and purity down to not very holy and not very pure. And they believed all manner of things. And they believed that Jesus was merely a, a man. One of them was, uh, uh, one of the beliefs was that Jesus was a man who was born in Nazareth, who was possessed by the spirit of uh, Christ. So, th- so they were t- attacking who he was. You know, we can look at that now and we go, well, we don't have Gnosticism in the church today. It could be argued. We've got Gnosticism in the world. It's a New Age movement. There's a lot of it in that. There's many, many books being written on it. But they're attacking who Christ was, attacking his person. They're attacking his divinity. They attack his revelation of who he is, the work that he did, and his sufficiency of his work. Attacking it. They were doing it through philosophical ways. Now, in those days, it was very popular. They didn't have TV. 
And they, you know, they just sat around and they could sit and they could ruminate and, and think about these things and, and not read the scriptures. Well, they didn't have a New Testament. <coughs> Excuse me. But they would sit and they would sort of think about these things and they would use all their learning and their, uh, everything they knew from other religions and they'd draw them all together to create an image of who they thought Christ was and who, what his mission was. It's fascinating, those, all the, the Gnostic beliefs. It's remarkable, though, you see every, time, every year, every Easter, whenever they attack Christ and who he was and his mission on earth, that they then bring out, oh, the gospel, uh, the gospel of Judas or the gospel of Mary, all of which were Gnostic gospels and non-Christian. They bring them out and they say, oh, well, look, there's been a revelation. But the people who look at these books and who think they're brilliant are never believers. They're always Gnostics. They're always people who are um, uh, atheists. Incidentally, the word uh, agnostic is one who says that they do not believe, which is the Greek. And if you look at the uh, Latin for do not believe, it is lunatic. There also was a movement many years ago, uh, or not many years ago, a few years ago, called uh, Mythists. Mythists who believed that Jesus was merely a myth. He was a legend. Surely he was uh, um, Artemis. Surely he was one of the, gro- the gods of, of uh, Egypt, just taken and rechanged. These group of Jewish men thought, ah, let's create our own faith. Let's get a money-making scandal. We'll take the mythology of Artemis or the mythology of someone else and we'll twist it and we'll change it and we'll just call him Jesus. And that's what some people believe. Now, academically, there's absolutely no grounding for it. Academically, even people who don't believe in uh, that Jesus was the son of God, but who believe he actually existed, think that they're, they're out of their tree. Literary from literary sources, there's far more evidence that Christ existed and that he lived and he walked this earth than almost for any other person in his day, certainly for any other in his day, but almost any other person today. The problem with those beliefs is that they are now pop culture. There's people out there who don't, know, who don't serve Christ, who don't know Christ as their savior, and yet they believe these things. They embrace them without actually evaluating them and weighing them up and considering them. Famously, in the last two, three years, the uh, mobile home apps, Alexa and Google Home, if you asked them who is Christ or who is Jesus Christ, would have said that he is a mythological figure which the Christian church is based upon. And then when you asked them who is Muhammad, well, he was the founder of the, the, the Islamic faith. And, da, 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 da. You're like, and who was Buddha? Well, Buddha was the founder of Buddhism who left, who left Hinduism. And da, 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 da. You know, you're going, what? So he's a myth, but they're not. Yeah. As a matter of research, I actually asked, uh, we got, got home Google there for Christmas. And I have asked it before, but I asked it this time. I asked it again, and this time it, doesn't, it left out the word myth. Because there's a lot of YouTube videos out there that you can see that, uh, where people have challenged that idea. And then we come down to Mark 8, 29. And it's, he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Because really, that's the most important part. That's the most important question. We know who they think he is, that they think he's a myth or a legend or re- irrelevant. But who do you say that he is? Who is he to you? is the question this morning. Who is he to you? See, all these attacks are out there to get us to question our faith in God, our belief in God. Is he true? Is he worthy of our praise? Is he worthy for me to spend my entire life serving him, honoring him? Is there importance in that? All these attacks want us to question ourselves, to question what we believe, to question what we hold to be true. And it is a question we all have to answer ourselves. Who do you say that he is? Who is he to you? And I don't want us to wander off into wild imaginations and, and thinking about who he was and who he might have been or who he might be. But when we look at him in light of the scriptures and our own personal experience, because that's what we can do. Look at him in light of the scriptures. 
And then what I have gone through, what I have experienced. You know, that is one of the greatest testimonies. I've heard people arguing apologists about the existence of God. And it's fabulous. And one of them always comes to the very last argument. He says, and I have met him. And I have been changed by him. And I have been saved by him. Because at the end of the day, how we answer that question is the most important thing in our lives. And what we do with that knowledge and that understanding is important to us. It's important to the kingdom of heaven. Because you can have that knowledge, yes, he changed me. Did he change you? Is it coming out in your life? Are we living like it's true? Are we living like he is real? He has saved us. This is why we want to look about Christ today. Focus on him. Because our experience with him can get layer upon layer upon layer of other stuff. And the praise and worship and the beginning of the service this morning brought us into that place where it starts to take those layers out of the way. And we can again express and rejoice in who he is. And we need to do it. We need to rejoice in who he is. Celebrate that. Because the world wants to push him out of our thinking, push him out of our lives and our experience. Now, I'm not saying that we should necessarily just remain broken at the foot of the cross at that moment when we came to know him. Yes, it's important that we're humble before the hand of Almighty God and that we realize who he is and what he's done. But it's important that we go on holding on to the cross and praising him, living a life for him. He's real. He's real. He's real. He's real to me. Not just real in history. He's not just someone who lived many years ago and did things. He's real to me today. And I need him to be real to me today. I need him to be real. I tell you, with all the things going on in my life, with all the things that come against my mind and my spirit and my soul, I need God to be real. I need Jesus to be real, to be here today, moving and shaking. Tell you, there's efforts, as I said at the beginning, there's efforts to push God away, to keep him at a distance from us. He did his work and then he left us to figure it all out. He is far off now. I tell you what, just plod along and that's merely all you'll have to do. He's saved you, but he's gone on. Just wait for one day. But as I said, it's important that we refresh in our hearts and our spirits the reality of who he is. Paul in this passage here builds up our expectation. It's like an announcement. It's like a grand entrance He brings us phrases and words which build up to the climax, to who he is. He starts off there by talking about Christ and his work in our lives. His image of Christ as our savior. See, our biggest problem then as now is not global warming. It's not Brexit or the EU. It's not Donald Trump. It's not whatever political things are going on around us. It's not whatever is going on in Stormont's. It's not anything like that. It's not our biggest problem. Our biggest problem is sin. Sin in our lives, sin in our world. See the amount of things that go on in this world that is pure sin, that is the fallen nature of man exalting itself. It is horrific. My wife and I went a few years ago to Alcatraz and it was, a, it was a fascinating visit. And I noticed on the way out, there was this wall with a big chart and it showed you all the countries of the world and their criminal, popula- crim- criminal population. And it was fascinating. America, the most affluent and the richest country in the world with the highest prison population in the world. Fascinating. In this day and age, whenever... And even the poorest in the West is far richer than the richest person 50 years ago, 60 years ago, 70 years ago. Most of us have a mobile phone in our pocket. The average phone when they were from, and with contracts and all, I'm not advertising any network, but average phone, what are you talking, 500, 
2,000 for the new app iPhones. Horrific. And yet, oh, I'm poor. Hey, you've got that technology in your pocket. We're not poor. The problem is that man's condition is sinful. Man's desire for other things, for greed and uh, uh, greedy thoughts and lustful thoughts and hateful thoughts and his actions upon those, coveting what other people have. I don't need, I don't need to be a, a philosopher to prove that, that man has a problem. So verse 13, Paul starts... And he says, he has delivered us. He has delivered us. That is to say, he has rescued us from danger. I've been rescued from danger. Praise the Lord. God, glory to God. I've been rescued from danger. You know what? That is absolutely fabulous. Fabulous news this morning that he has rescued us. We couldn't rescue ourselves. We couldn't do a thing to get us out of danger. But he rescued us from the guilt and from the penalty of sin. But Jesus did. Now, wonderful. What a, what a, what a, the introduction has started. The introduction has started. Jesus, we're going to be talking about Jesus. He has delivered us from sin. Glory to God. Also delivered us from the authority of Satan. Wow. Tell you what. He, we've been delivered from the authority of Satan. That's a call for rejoicing right there. I've been delivered. Oh, praise the Lord. Delivered. That means he can no longer got a sway over my life. No longer got claim on my life. I've been delivered. Glory to God. Isn't that wonderful? Be delivered to be set free. Freedom. There's people out there who don't know what freedom is. They rejoice in freedom, but it's not real freedom. I've been set free. I've been delivered. Praise you, Lord, God in heaven. God is good. He has delivered us. What an introduction. Wow. Started. He's delivered us. We're no longer subject to the enemy. No longer under that sentence of death. I've been delivered. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Boys and dears, we need to be reminded of that. I think that is absolutely the best news yet. The best news yet. I, I tell you, I want to rejoice and sing. Praise his name. I've been delivered. Boy, I, I couldn't even deliver myself. He goes on to say there, he's delivered, uh, delivered us from the power of darkness, glory to God, and conveyed us into the kingdom of his son. That is, he has translated us in some of the older versions. Translated us. The word translated here, that is translated from the Greek, is a word to do with deportation of a population from one country to another. Famously, Antiochus the Great of the Seleucid Empire had actually trans translated 2,000 Jews from Babylonia to Colossae. Jesus did not release us from bondage to wander aimlessly. He didn't want release us from bondage to wander aimlessly. Newsflash, God's plan was not for the children of Israel to spend 40 years in the wilderness. That wasn't his plan. He took them within two weeks to the, to the border, sent the, the spies in. That was his plan, was to get in. God doesn't release us from bondage and then just leave us. He translates us, he takes us into his promises. Now, we might not have fully received them or experienced them, but there's a many of them we do. We can have that freedom. He takes us out of the kingdom of darkness to take us into the kingdom of light. <coughs> it's fascinating, actually. The word translate can obviously mean to be about language. We translate language. And it, says, it can also mean to take from, move from one country to another. But another understanding of the word translate is to change from one form to another. To change from one form to another. The idea being like I'm changing, uh, transforming from my mind thoughts and I'm writing them on a page. So they have been translated. That, so it's changed from a thought into words. And then I'm taking those words on that there, on that bit of paper, and I'm translating it into making something. So it's been translated again. So we have been translated. Does nobody see where I'm going with this? 
to does nobody see? We've been translated from one place to another place, and we are now a new creation. That's pretty good stuff. It's pretty good. Translated, changed, transformed. Wonderful. Fabulous. Great. That's only one verse. That's only one verse. And that's enough reason to rejoice and celebrate that would keep us going for the rest of the day. God is good. I love the way it goes. It says there, actually. It delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love. The original King James said, into the kingdom of his dear son. But I like that there version, the son of his love. Now we've been translated into the kingdom of love. And we can get, a, get sometimes touchy about all these touchy-feely things. But we've been translated in a kingdom of love, not a kingdom of anger and hatred and jealousy, not a kingdom of darkness and backbiting and sniping and selfishness and uh, all the rest. We've been translated into a kingdom of love, a kingdom where God is supreme, where the rule of life, the rule of law is love. It's wonderful. It's fabulous to know that. And it goes on there in verse 14, in whom we have redemption through his blood. We've been redeemed. Redeemed. I can remember there a few months back doing communion and just reading, reading the, the lines of that song, redeemed, how I love to proclaim it, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Redeemed by, redeemed how I love to proclaim it, his child and forever I am. This means to release a prisoner by payment of a ransom. The holy demands of God's law has been met. The ransom for our souls was paid on Calvary. And we no longer have to fear or entertain the lies and accusations of the enemy. The, ac the enemy is the accuser of the brethren. Yes. Not what he's called in the scripture, the father of lies. Father of lies. Sometimes we can get, we can get forgiveness for things. Sometimes we can whenever we come to Christ. We can, we can receive forgiveness. But the enemy sometimes will pursue us with accusations. He'll pursue us with lies. He'll pursue us and say, yes, but. Yes, but. Yes, but. You did, you did that. But didn't you do this? Didn't you do that? Didn't you think this? Didn't you do that? He'll accuse and accuse and accuse. But we have been redeemed, set free from the, the bondage of those lies no longer subject to them, no longer swayed by them, no longer under their, the fear of them. So in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. That's a powerful thought, actually, the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness means to send away or to cancel a debt. My goodness, the wages of sin is death. We were in a deficit when we started and we were just getting worse. But it's all been cleared off. It's all been settled in God's moral economy. <clears throat> just wanted, I just read these two verses. Colossians 2, 13 and 14. And it says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. Glory to God. Case, case closed. Case closed. It's important that we have a good understanding of who Christ is and what he means to us. What he's, and this introduction so far has come to the point now where it's been about us, what God's done for us, how he's changed us, how he's led us, what he's done in our lives, how he's redeemed us and freed us. But, the, but we're not finished yet. John Piper talking about this idea of people not seeing Christ as supreme. It says, if you don't see the greatness of God then all the things that money can buy become very exciting. If you can't see the sun, you'll be impressed with a streetlight. If you've never felt thunder and lightning, you'll be impressed with fireworks. And if you turn your back on the greatness and majesty of God, you'll fall in love with a world of shadows and short-lived pleasures. So true. 
It's the old song that we used to sing years ago, many years ago. You'll have to have more gray hairs than I to know this one. He grows sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Oh, what a love between my Lord and I. And it goes on from there. <laughs> I tell you what I was I actually couldn't remember the words until I started writing it down. <laughs> I started singing it. I was singing, he grows sweeter and sweeter as the days go by. Oh, what a love between my Lord and I. <laughs> That's it. That's it. That's fabulous, doesn't he? Hasn't he, hasn't he done something wonderful in our lives? He's done something wonderful. It says in Colossians 2.18, Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility and worship of angels, intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind and not holding fast, uh, to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from God. Let no one cheat you of these things. Let no one cheat you of how invaluable they are, how important they are. Because people will cheat you. People will try to steal these things from us, cover it up, just put another layer on it, make it, make it something that happened or something that was important to me years ago. Have you gone through, have you moved house or have you gone through an old cupboard and you found something? Oh, I remember when that used to be my favorite sweater. I remember when that used to be my favorite pen uh, or, or whatever, phone. I remember I found phones the other day and it was like, I've got an old flip phone. I remember when that used to be my favorite phone. It was the latest thing. And that's what the world will do. That's what the, the people will do. They'll try to make those things less important. They'll cheat you of the importance of them. They'll cheat you of the value of them. <coughs> So they try to push him away to make him seem far, far away in distance. And yet at the same time, there's others that would, would desire us to pull him close and just think of him as a, a savior who is here and now, whose savior's done his work and that's it all over. We have to be careful that we don't relegate him to one or the other only, that we've got a balanced view of Christ and of who he is and what he's done, that we look at him in, in his majesty and his humanity, and his divinity and his humanity, I should say, they look at Christ and they would say about these issues that plague us today that have been voted on over the last few years, that have been embraced, and they say, oh, Christ never dealt with those things. God never spoke about that. Jesus, he never, he never dealt with, with these issues about marriage or sexuality or, or birth or life or anything. like. Oh, he never talked about those things. That's what they'll say because he was short-sighted. He was a man. He had a task to do. He did the task, and that's all that was there. But he's still God. God of the universe, transcendent, eternal God. He is out there. Movie of the Passion, I'm sure many of us have seen it. It's a fascinating movie. And leaving aside the sort of very, sort of Catholic overtones that were in the movie, it was fascinating to watch. But for us, I am sure it's fair to say, as we watch that movie, we've filled in the blanks in our head. We knew who he was to begin with. But the movie does a, doesn't do a very good job of presenting him as the Son of God incarnate. Doesn't do a very good job of presenting him as God who has limited himself to flesh. It was tragic circumstances, but this really, the whole cross and the passion of Christ was a time of rejoicing for us. as a time of celebrating because by his stripes, I am healed. Oh, it's sad that his body was broken and it was pierced and he died. And those are emotional things and they're tragic. But at the same time, that paid for me. That's a, that's a call to rejoice, to celebrate. Verse 15, as we go on to the next verse. <coughs> <clears throat> I forgot to put this in. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, that He existed before creation. The firstborn is not a biological term but a positional term. 
It's not to do with the fact that he was born, he was created. It's to do with the fact that he is first. It's a positional term. He is the first of importance, the first of significance. Paul uses the word here, image, to make this clear, the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 3, verse 3 says, Who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. See, God is spirit and he's invisible, but Christ made God visible. In Christ, we no longer had to think of God as merely out there. Now Christ, now God was now in flesh, tented in flesh. I love that idea that he came and he tented himself in flesh. He tabernacled himself in flesh. It's like the tabernacle from the Old Testament. That was God's plan. He wanted to wander, through the, he wanted to wander around the people, to be in the midst of them and amongst, amongst them. Whenever, whenever David suggested making a, a, the temple, God was affronted. He was like, I want to be out there with the people. He says, but I'll let you build a temple. So he's the firstborn. He says, Christ was making God visible to mankind, showing that God was involved, that he wasn't just out there. But this is a, a, an amazing idea that God of eternity, the limitless God of the universe, has now come and tented himself in flesh. This is again, to, this is call for rejoicing, celebrating. Can you imagine it? Tented in flesh. Warren Wearsby says that nature reveals the existence, power, and wisdom of God, but nature cannot reveal the very essence of God to us. It is only Jesus Christ that the invisible God has revealed perfectly. Since no mere creature can perfectly reveal God, Jesus Christ must be God. And I agree. Praise the Lord. He goes on here and he says that... Um, Verse 16, for by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him all things consist. In Greek thought, they had this idea of the four causes. They believed that everything had four, that the universe as a whole and everything had four causes. They believed that it was a material cause. In other words, the word cause isn't a good translation in English, but there was a material. Everything has material substance to it. Uh, it was literally the material things that make up everything. There was a formal cause or a design. Everything had a design that, that it, it lived by. We could look at that now and we could say that's DNA. That's the, the genetic code that, that creates trees and plants and people in the way that they are. They believed that everything had a, an efficient cause. In other words, there was something that actually was doing the causing. And then there was a final cause. There was an end result or a conclusion. Here in the passage, Paul is drawing on, on his knowledge of what the Greek culture. He's drawing on those things, and he's, he's, he's dropping a wee thing in there. Now, he didn't use the word cause, but I'm sure he was saying here in enough words for these people who were meant to be intelligent thinkers and philosophers that Christ is, the, is all in all. Christ is all in all. He is the cause of everything. He is the cause of creation, the cause of life. As it says there in those verses, by him all things were created that are in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. We've got to the, the, we're getting to the climax of our introduction. This is Christ. He, he's not just one who saved us, forgave us, redeemed us, delivered us. Now we're getting to the point where, where he's saying that, but he's more than just that. He's the God who created all things. He was involved in all things. It's like John, when he wrote his gospel and he talks about the Logos, he was drawing on a guy called, um, and again, Heraclitus from the 5th century BC, who talked about the Logos being this unknowable mind that created everything. So whenever John's talking about God, Jesus, he's saying, okay, Jesus was before all things. He was the Logos. So all the Greeks would have gone, yes, that's right. The Logos was out there. In the beginning was the Logos. It was everywhere. It, it designed everything. He says, and the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. The Greeks would be going, that's okay, I can believe that. 
He says, then it gets to the point where he hits them with a right between the eyes, and says, and the Logos became flesh and dwelled among us. <sighs> Powerful. See, Paul's picking up. Maybe, maybe I, I'm not sure if Paul had read what John had written by this point, but he's, you can see how the Spirit of God, or the Holy Spirit who inspired the Scriptures, is, is feeding both narratives. He's bringing it in there. He's telling from two different angles. He says, Christ is all in all. He created all things. He was before all things. He caused all things. Nothing is that, what, that is without his involvement. Isn't it wonderful? This is the God we've come to praise and to glorify today, to lift up in our lives, to, to, to worship him, to appreciate once again what his work in our lives and who he is. It's, it's fabulous. It's important that we do this once in a while, that we, we, we remind ourselves, stir it up, bring these things to the fore again. C.S. Lewis said, probably one of my favorite quotes. He says, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of a cell. What a mighty God we serve. Isn't he wonderful today? Hasn't he done something in our lives? Doesn't he mean something to us? Isn't he valuable to us, precious to us? Isn't he worthy of our, our efforts, our attention, our devotion? Doesn't he stand head and shoulders above everything else in this world? Above all other people in this world? Those people who stand up on our, our, our stages and our platforms or our TVs or our podiums or our political sphere or wherever, and they'd say that I, I am the greatest, I am the most important, I have got the biggest contribution to make, they pale in insignificance. Pale in insignificance when considered in light of Christ. A few years ago, I wrote this, this piece down here. I'm just going to read this out in, in closing. But I wrote, I wrote this down a few years ago. It's called The Peerless Son of God. Within the ranks of the sons of men, one stands taller than the rest. Men of renown, of intellect, of strength, of character, and force of will. This pantheon is filled with the likes of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, whose philosophical insights and thinking are still discussed to this day. Men like Alexander, Caesar, and Charlemagne, whose military and political genius has indelibly etched their names on European and world history. Men like Buddha, Krishna, Muhammad, who founded religions that lasted long after their deaths. Men like Churchill and Lincoln, who inspired their nations to greatness in the face of adversary. On and on the roll call would continue, but the head would still be the humble carpenter from Nazareth. Although he stands at the head of such an austere list, there is something almost irreverent about his inclusion in such company, for he is so much more than merely a man. He cannot be measured and limited to an antidotal story of a bygone age. How can we compare the insightful way he spoke about life and God to the mere wordplay by thinkers who grasp at the divine or the eternal? Or what of his conquests? Caesar, Charlemagne, Napoleon founded empires that have disappeared in the dust of time, but his kingdom was not of this world, and instead of conquering nations and barbarians, he conquered the human heart. As a source of inspiration, none in the history of the earth has inspired more books, more art, more music, or more men and women to great acts of heroism and sacrifice than Jesus of Nazareth. And that is not the end. For as, an, a historical figure, he has ne uh, for as a historical figure is always diminishing in impact with these successive generations, the same cannot be said for Jesus. For successive generations come to know him and his importance in their lives. He still meets men, women, boys and girls just where they are and changes their lives. He does more than stand head and shoulders above the other great men of history. He eclipses them. In the shadow of this great king, all other kings are flawed and failures. In the wake of this great teacher, all other teachers and thinkers and philosophers are children playing with crayons. 
Jesus is peerless and without equal. He alone has lived a spotless and sinless life. He alone is worthy of all honor and praise. He is the great redeemer, restorer, healer, deliverer, champion of the weak and destitute, savior of the lost, prince of peace, king of kings and lord of lords. People today discount him in his message without ever actually looking into it. Can we truly claim to have considered all the great men of history without examining the life of Christ? I don't think so. To, to fail to consider Jesus is not even a half-completed job. Isn't he wonderful this morning? Isn't it okay to glorify him and to praise him? So this question is this morning, who do you say that he is to you? What has he done in your life? Is he important to you this morning? Is he valuable to you this morning? Let me encourage you today to consider that, to consider him, and to take a moment just to glorify him, praise him, and lift his name up high. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.